0: Growing Up Iruni interview with Majon Kamoli, author of The Stationery Shop. My name is Leila Shams, and I am the host of Learn Persian with and Conversation. Today, I'm so excited to share with you my conversation with Majan Kamali, award-winning author of The Stationery Shop. I actually recently read The Stationery Shop with a wonderful book club called Ketop Club. I'll link to it in the show notes in case any of you want to join. I highly recommend. But the founder of the group, Kimia, said that The Stationery Shop was the number one recommended book when she asked her audience for suggestions for books by Middle Eastern authors. I read the book along with about a dozen other women, and it was such an incredible experience going through the book and talking about what emotions and memories it brought up in all of us. The book is set in a tumultuous time in Iran, and no, not the one you're probably thinking about, the 1979 revolution, but a couple decades prior to that in the 1953 coup, and about two lovers whose destinies were perhaps altered because of that tumultuous time. In general, a lot of focus with Iran discourse goes to the 1979 revolution, but the 1953 coup also altered the course of Iranian history, and you really see that in this novel. Kamali shows that for a lot of that generation in Iran, the coup was the ultimate loss of hope, and the event from which Iran did not recover. The book was absolutely incredible, and I recommend that everyone read it, especially now, as you'll hear me say in the interview. I really enjoyed talking to Majan, hearing about the inspiration for the novel, her thoughts on what's happening in Iran today and where she thinks this is all leading. And with that, let's listen to my conversation with Majan Kamoli. Majan Kamoli, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for
1: having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Me too. And yeah, I first found out about you, actually, because my mother is in this short story writing club, or not club, I guess she's in a group, and they had invited you to speak. And she was like, I think you should come to this. It's going to be really wonderful. Hezar Osan in Dallas. Oh, is that? Your mom was there. That's awesome. Yeah. So they have this wonderful writing group, and they'd invited you, and she was like, I think you'll really enjoy it. And I came on, and I loved the conversation that you had, and you were so generous with your time and answering Mm -hmm. their questions. So patiently and I was so excited to read your book and that was what two years ago or something it was a while ago
1: yeah that was a while ago and I remember being so nervous for that conversation because it was con- conducted in Persian right. for the most part I think if my memory serves correctly I did speak Persian and I remember I was yeah. so nervous but they were so nice. yeah and it was a wonderful conversation and I would wanted to talk
0: to you since then we scheduled to talk in early September but my daughter was being born that time, and I feel like it is fortuitous because just reading the book now meant s- such a different thing than than reading it a couple years ago even, I think. It's just so timely after everything that's happened the past few months, so I can't wait to dive into it. And it is a book with a lot of spoilers and a lot of uh, <laughs> twists and turns, so I don't want to give too much away, so I thought we'd begin the conversation with you telling the audience who hasn't read it. I want everybody to read this book, you know, drop everything you're doing. It's so fun to read. So wonderful. And I should mention, I just reread it with a group of others in a, it's called Ketob Club NYC, which I encourage a lot of people to read too. But she said Kimia, who leads the group, said that it was the number one requested novel. She's been asking for months for people to suggest what to read. She likes to read mostly like books by Middle Eastern authors. And this was the number one requested novel. And the discussions that we had were like therapy. I mean, people, I'm sure you get this all the time. They were just crying, telling about their families, their parents, their stories. It was really lovely to read it with them. And they were all a little bit younger. So they were talking about this for them was their grandparents' age, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which I was like, oh, I'm way older than y'all. This is definitely <laughs> my parents. <laughs> yeah, me too. Oh, my parents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, so to go back, and I just want to say I love the book. I really enjoyed it. It makes you feel like a child reading again, because you can't oh. put it down. It's mm-hmm. one of those books where you just you want to get through to the very end. Don't interrupt anything and just read it. So I encourage everyone to read it. And having said that, if you want to tell us the kind of idea of the story... Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. First of all, thank you again for having me on. This is just so so special to me considering how hard we tried and also everything that's happened since we initially were going to meet. But The Stationery Shop is a love story. It's about two teenagers who fall in love madly when they're 17, the way one does only when one is super young, I would say. And they, they have this whirlwind romance in Tehran in 1953. And then on the day that they're set to get their marriage certificate, they want to get married, the country erupts into a violent coup d'etat, and they're separated. And even though Roya, our heroine, tries desperately to find Bahman, they don't succeed in reuniting until 60 years later in Massachusetts in an assisted living facility. And there are a lot of tears involved with this book. Definitely. On both my part and the reader's part.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I was wondering that. Were you just crying while you were writing the, the book?
1: Was it? I was crying so much. At one yeah. point in the first draft, on my desk, I, I kid you not, there were like scrumpled up tissues, mountains of scrumpled up tissues. Because there's a certain scene and you've read the book and I don't want to give it away. But that's what I consider the healing scene where they finally get a little bit of closure after 60 years. And that scene, as I was writing it, I was crying. And I know that readers have been too, because they've let me know that.
0: Definitely. And I felt like, I mean, I feel like everyone in the group felt like they could personally connect with this story a lot. I mean, all of us are obviously kids of immigrants from Iran. And this is about the 1953 coup d'etat, which I want to talk about. But I think a lot of us reference 1979 so much. But, you know, all these events in Iran had such huge effects, you know, ripple effects of like causing chaos in every family. And so my parents, for example, were not able to be together because of all these things as well. Durud, everyone. Leila here with a quick message. If you're enjoying this conversation and would like to hear more like it, I highly encourage you to sign up for our newsletter. In addition to giving you updates about our interviews, we send out a weekly email where we talk about Iranian culture and the Persian language. The emails are short and sweet and just give you a few ideas to ponder and inspire you on your learning journey. You can sign up for that and find out a lot more about us on our website at chaiinconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I. Now. Back to the interview. He, my father was a communist, became a refugee, went to L- London. My mother came to America. They weren't ever together again. And they kind of had this kind of love story as well, where they were these kind of star-crossed lovers. And also, there was a lot of family things with them if, to not be together either, just like Roya and Batman. But for me, that was just reading. It was really heartbreaking for me, too. Because at first, like you said, it's a 17-year-old love story. And I feel like for me, it's like, okay, you're, you'll are you get over it. You're, <laughs> then more things will happen. You'll meet other people. But really, I feel like these outside forces really had such a huge effect on people's lives. And we all can relate to that in so many ways.
1: Absolutely. And Roya's heartbreak, if you look at it on the surface... In the book, this character is suffering immense loss because she's lost her first love, her fiancé, and they're super young, and she misses him. But I think if you look at it on a deeper level, it's exactly all those things you said. She's lost her country. She lost the country she once knew, and it coincided for her with the loss of her first love, but so much of the heartache that she harbors for 60 years Years. I think she attributes maybe to the loss of this first love, but it's also the loss of not just her country, but her family. Like you said, and I know we talk a lot about 1979, as we should. For people of my generation, that is the original wound. But for people of my parents' generation, 1953 played such a huge role in leading up to 79. But I think, regardless of Which uprising you want to focus on, and sadly in Iran, we have many. The biggest loss people talk about politics a lot, people talk about, you know, the effects of this on economics and all that. The biggest loss, I think, that we've all harbored is the loss of our families. We lost the ability to be within the network and safety of our extended families, and most of us. Had huge extended social networks through our families, and to me, that's the biggest loss of the 1979 revolution. I can't speak to 1953 on a personal level, but I lost knowing my cousin and I lost knowing my grandparents, and we all became siloed in these nuclear units. If we were lucky, like you said, I mean, even your parents were separated, and I know people very dear to me, my generation who were separated from their parents for decades. So yeah, that's, that I think is the biggest shame. That's such
0: a good point. That's such a beautiful way to put it. And she did Roya in the story comes to America and really she loses her sister. She loses her family, which actually that came up in the book club discussion of why couldn't her family be more involved with her? Like, why couldn't they just come visit? What was going on there? That's a
1: really good question. And I get asked that a lot at book clubs to the point that I'm beginning to think, hmm, I mean, I I should have explained that better. You know what? I took it for granted that people knew that families evaporated and kind of disappeared off the page. In retrospect, I think I should have added a line or two saying, when her parents could stop visiting so that the reader knew. But I think for me, because this was the lived experience of so many people I knew, I just, I just assumed they did come to visit initially for Roya's wedding to Walter. They were there, they're present on the page. And then like so many elderly parents who stayed in Iran and their children, you know, emigrated to the West, they just, for the most part, stop seeing each other regularly. And we have an entire culture now of grandparents, let's say grandparents for the sake of your book club members, or in our case, maybe parents, but grandparents who their communication with their grandchildren is through iPads and FaceTime. And there's this you know, golden hour when it's evening in Tehran or other cities in Iran, other places in Iran, And that's their communication. This distance, I think, is not um, uncommon.
0: Well, I did also want to tell them, like, now there's iPads. But at the time, also, it was so expensive. Like, they were saying, why couldn't they just meet in another country? Well, it was so expensive to do air travel. It's much more accessible now. And there were no iPads. Obviously, long-distance calls were so expensive. So you really had to save up for even making a phone call. You couldn't just see each other either on a FaceTime.
1: Absolutely. And even if you were privileged enough to have the money, try getting that visa with an Iranian passport like that in and of itself is this entire rigmarole. It's not like families didn't try to see each other more. But if you weren't a U.S. citizen or a permanent residence, for for example, if your kids were in the U.S., how do you get that visa? The Iranian passport was was not, shall we say, a popular one. Right. Well, that's a great
0: point, loss of family. But I also want to talk about, so in the novel, like we said, it's set in the 1953 coup. And the 1979 makes an appearance, obviously, it, it happens. But Bathman writes about it as, oh, this thing is happening. Everyone's so hopeful. I'm afraid that it's not going to be the way they think it's going to be. So, it's not another catastrophic event that happens in 1979. It's more like a continuation of a catastrophe that happened in 1953. So, can you tell me a little bit about it? And, you know, since what's happened in September, since after Massa Amini, I do feel like a lot of the focus has been on everything was perfect and then 1979 happened. So, can you kind of walk us through that and tell the audience what happened in 1953? Why was the feeling of loss of country? for Roya and Batman then?
1: Yeah, you know, I think um, I in in The Stationery Shop, I particularly wanted to focus on 1953, mostly because in my first book, In Together Tea, I focused on 1979 and I explored how 1979 affected one particular family so deeply. And I didn't want to kind of write the same book again. So in The Stationery Shop, 1979 kind of is part and parcel of the entire narrative, as opposed to the big blow-up event that so many of us feel it was in our lived experience. In 1953, what happened was a confluence of events where you had uh, Prime Minister Mossadegh who was democratically elected. And I know some people now say he wasn't. Well, he was the prime minister. Let's leave it at that. And he wanted to nationalize the oil of Iran. And there were forces that were against this, namely British Petroleum, which at the time in Iran was the Anglo-Iranian oil company. For their own reasons, they did not want this to happen. And then you had outside interference along with Iranian cooperation. Okay, I'm not blaming it entirely on outsiders. There was plenty of cooperation within, but he was ousted. There was literally a mob that descended into squares of the city on August 19th, 1953, attacked his home such that he had to climb out a window, go down a ladder. It's the stuff of like spy novels. Now, to this day, people are arguing some of You know, who is responsible and how much of this is true, which I mean, even the U.S. government has declassified documents and given an apology. But that was for the generation that was super hopeful, like Bahman and Roya, 17 years old in Tehran. I want to make a difference that I'm writing about people in Tehran. And there was a big difference between city life and maybe village life and also class You know, they are the middle to upper middle class. And I think that from my research and the people I spoke to, what happened in 1953 was the first taste of disillusionment and the idea that no matter how hard we try, we just can't get there. We tried. We tried so hard. And it was all destroyed overnight and things changed. And look, I get it. In retrospect, when we look in hindsight, a lot of pre-1979 compared to what people are experiencing today seems better, but not perfect. And I think that needs to be said. That's my personal opinion. Culturally, people did have a ton more freedom and thank God for that. But politically, it was still repressive.
0: Right. And even looking at the literacy rates, by the time by 1979 what was the literacy rate it was like
1: 40% or something i i don't know the exact number but i do know that since the revolution you know that is one of the things that improved and ironically much as those of us who have immense heartbreak over the loss of women's rights that happened since 1979 ironically they did become more prevalent students in colleges and universities. So we have to also admit that.
0: There was a quote that I wanted to read in here that I thought is incredible with, like I said, this book, reading it now just seems so incredibly timing and timely. It seems incredibly timely. But the quote is, the past was always there, lurking in the corners, winking at you when you thought you'd moved on, hanging onto your organs from the inside. That really got me. That was one of those lines that really got me because I feel like, you know, I have this language learning program right now. And since the protests, the mass amini happened in September, so many people have been reaching out to me, half Iranians, full Iranians, people who have never cared about Iran before saying, you know, I, I thought that part of me was like behind me. I thought we were like assimilated. But now all of a sudden I feel so Iranian. I'm all these feelings are coming up. And I feel like it is this kind of like collective unconscious within all of us, even if we've like never thought about Iran before, even if we're comfortable, you know, the people who have grown up here, they're comfortable, they speak English, never thought, you know, twice about their identity. All of a sudden, that past has come really lurking up. So I'm wondering if that's what you've experienced, how you've experienced the past few months, what you're hearing from people.
1: Yes that quote was a popular quote from the book Pre the Massa Amni tragedy and people were attributing it to oh you know my past losses my past loves other things and you know American audiences international audiences it struck a chord with everybody but I love how you connected that to what we all have experienced since September 2022 it's exactly that So many of us who have grown up, I'll speak for myself, in the United States, we have, quote unquote, succeeded. We are highly, not all of us, but, you know, for the most part, highly functional in professional jobs. And we're very good at pushing down what traumatized us and getting on with it. Because I do think it is part of the Persian culture of our parents, at least, to be like, just stop. Do not wallow. Do not despair. You yeah, you know, I remember my mom would say to me, would like go wash your face and get back in the game, you know. And, and this was what we did. But what the Massa Amine tragic killing unleashed was the opening of these old wounds. And we realized that maybe for decades. We marched along and lived our cute little lives or our terrible lives, but we pushed away that connection. And how stunning is it? I didn't though, because I'm writing these books. And so finally I was like, "Oh my God, yeah, this is what I've been talking about." But you know, for, for a lot of people, they didn't want to connect to that part of themselves. And I think it's stunning. That no matter how long you've been out of the country, no matter how tenuous your connection is, whether you are half Iranian, a quarter Iranian, or you know have parents who weren't even that much into the culture, it's stunning how visceral this reaction was. And you saw it play out in real time. I mean, you and I we've both seen those social media clips of people protesting in Germany, for example, weeping. Or what the song did, what Baroya did for us, where it it just like unleashed all those emotions for us. and this is a loss from which we've never recovered. And I don't know if we ever will. I don't pers- I don't want to depress everybody, but I don't personally think we ever will. And that doesn't mean that's a bad thing. It just means that the wound is pretty deep. And the trauma is real, whether you want to admit it or not.
0: That's beautiful. Yeah, that's exactly been my experience with hearing about it. Even like, you know, my aunt who she moved when she was a teenager and she, you know, there's been a lot of things that have happened. 2009 happened, you know, the Green Movement. 2019 happened. 1,500 people were killed in the streets. It's just somehow this is the one that all of a sudden opened up you know the voices of the people so it's it's really interesting that that's happened
1: i think it brought to light everything that we knew to be true but that we wanted to maybe pretend wasn't and to move on from you know right we wanted to believe it was maybe kind of gonna get better and we wanted to believe that it couldn't be that bad and those of us in the public eye who represent whether we like it or not iranian americans i know i spent a lot of my time constantly saying to people no no it's not like all the way no i want you to know and then finally it was like our abuser was front and center for the world to see and all this pain came pouring out. And I realized, you know what, guys? Yeah, this this is a truth about our patriarchal culture, whether we want to believe it or not, whether we want to talk about it or not. Absolutely. It has not gone away.
0: Absolutely. I, I think for me, one of the big things that happened is that, yeah, I spent years also being like, oh, Iran is amazing. It's this, it's that. But The thing that this made me realize and give me language for is that Iran is not the Islamic Republic. Like we can still talk about how amazing Iran is, how the mountains are, the water, the beautiful people. And then we can say, but this is really messed up and it's okay to say it's really messed up. Because I feel like before, if we were trying to say this is really messed up, we felt like we were saying our culture is messed up. It's not that. It's two different things.
1: Yes, beautifully said. And I totally agree. Because I think in the past, you know, we kept saying, look at the food. It's yeah. so delicious. Yes. And, oh, ooh, it's so colorful, gorgeous. <laughs> yes. And I, you know, I kept saying, not all Iranian men, you know, which is true. But at the same time, um, you are correct that we can separate the two. And shouldn't we separate the two? My God. I mean, think about it. We have a culture that goes back thousands of years and a regime that's 44 years old. In my heart, I always separated them. But sometimes I think it felt difficult to explain that. But in a way, now more people know that.
0: Absolutely.
1: I had another question
0: from the reading group. And then I wanted to talk about you and your background afterwards. But they asked, they'd like to know about your research process and how you gathered stories to formulate your characters and their plot lines.
1: Yes, well, for my first book for Together Tea, my research process was a little bit easier because so much of it was mining my own memories. So my, also my, luckily I'm a journal girl, so I've documented my life and I have journals I can go back to, but what did it feel like when the first bombs fell on Tehran? It's in my journal. What did it feel like to be in the basement bomb shelter? It's all there. But for the stationery shop, obviously I had to talk to others and I interviewed a lot of people. I read a lot of nonfiction books about the coup, which... Exist and there's many and you can, you know, look them up and read them and things like down to the minute are explained down to the minute of what happened. Did you read them in Persian or in English? Oh, in English. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I wish I, I I can read Persian, but my education level in Persian is fifth grade level. I mean, I can read it, but no, I read them in English. But then I also tried to interview people. And I was in a position of privilege because I know a lot of people who lived through that time. And I interviewed as many people as I could, and they gave me their own accounts. Some were more helpful than others. Sometimes I got kind of like, wait, why are you writing this book? We don't want you to write this book. Don't write this book. Write about Australia, Um, you know? I got a lot of that. Australia and, in particular? Um, uh-uh, yeah, because I did live there. And, okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> that's why that came up. But a lot of my elderly relatives were like, ah, no, 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 don't do it wrong. And, you know, which I'm used to. But But a few people really opened up, and one of them was my father. And he shared with me not just what happened during that summer, but details that were fascinating, like the kinds of shoes they were wearing, the music the kids were listening to. You know, because you've read the book, the particular pastries in the cafe. He was adamant that I explained the elephant ear pastries, the tongue pastries, the, the coffees, what was playing at Cinema Metropole and what Cinema Metropole looked like. So all of that is very real, and he kept telling me, you know, you better get the street names right and the geography right, and I and I he drew me maps, and I was like, okay, well no one's going to care. But then when it went to copy editing, uh, the copy editor at Simon and Schuster would come back to me and say things like, oh, you wrote Hoffes Street, it was actually Hoffes Avenue. Oh wow! So all of that was fact check. They fact checked the geographical details and they fact checked anything. You know, that was based on a historical event that I said. Because we all we all want to be, even though it's fiction, that part needs to be true.
0: Right, right. And then the characters, are they based on people that you know? Or is there any real people in there? Actually, in the end, you mentioned, uh, Mr. Factory mentioned some of the couples that he got together. Were those
1: real couples? <laughs> They're not real couples. Okay. <laughs> but here's, so Roya, I made up. Roya is a character I made up, but of course, whenever you write a character, if any writer tells you it's based on absolutely no one, they're lying, because it's always going to be a composite, not just of people you know, but also of yourself. So for certain emotional scenes of Roya's, I used my own emotional bank of loss. Roya, I did technically make up, and Bahman is made up. Mr. Fakhri, so... He's made up, but my dad said to me once in passing, he said, oh, when I was in high school, we used to go to the stationery shop where the owner would pass love letters to the teenagers in between the pages of the book so they could communicate. <laughs> and I remember he told me this and I thought, how does that not go in a novel? <laughs> Are you kidding me? That, that's going to be in a book. That part is true. That part is true.
0: Well, so this interview series is called Growing Up Irani. So I'd love to hear about your past. So you've talked a little bit about your father. So where were you born? And you lived in, what, seven countries growing up? So what were those? What was your story of growing up?
1: I moved a lot when I was growing up. Uh, I was born in Turkey to Iranian parents. And then we moved to Iran. And then from there, we moved to Hamburg, Germany. And from there to Nairobi, Kenya and then back to Iran. So I was in Iran right after the revolution because people forget that there was this moment where it's like, yay, everything's gonna be perfect now. People were dancing in the streets. Yeah, so we went back and then quickly became clear that that was not the direction the country was going in. So, and then, as an adult, I moved to Switzerland and Australia. Ergo one day, I will have to write a book about Australia. <laughs> okay, why were you moving so much as a child pre revolution uh, pre revolution My dad was a diplomat, so we were assigned to a different country every three years, and he got very sick. so my dad has been he was struck with a severe autoimmune disease when I was a year old, and he progressively got worse and so Sometimes his assignments got shorter and shorter, and then eventually he he retired pretty young because he was quite sick. But that's why I moved when I was little, and then I swore that I would marry someone who never moved and so the first thing I did out of college is I married someone who moved a lot, and so with him I've moved. Plenty. Yeah. So Why does he move a lot? For his job. Well, right now we've been in Massachusetts for almost 15 years, which is the longest I've lived anywhere. But he was moving a ton and I finally put an end to that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll get to that in a bit. But then what
0: did you what language did you grow up speaking? What was your relationship with Iranian culture as you were growing up?
1: I think my relationship with Iranian culture was stronger because we moved so much. My parents felt a deep desire to keep us knowing the culture because the outside culture was always so different. So whether I was in Germany or Kenya um, or the United States, the home I came to after the end of a school day was a very Iruni home. We spoke Persian, we spoke Persian to my and parents. how many siblings do you have? My one sister, she's three years older. You spoke Persian to each other back then? We did when we were little, and then it evolved into English. And as we got older, and to this day, it's a little weird at our dinner table, but when we speak to our parents, we speak Persian. When we speak to one another, we speak English. It's just the comfort zone. I can obviously speak Persian to my sister, but we communicate in English, but we communicate to our parents in Persian. And we ate Persian food and we listened to Iranian music and read Persian poetry. And my parents were very much just naturally steeping us in the culture. And I never thought it was all that strange. I was so used to straddling different cultures. Especially because I'd moved so much. So, you know, it, you you learn to code switch. It's like, oh, if I go to my American friend's house to this day and they say, oh, would you like something to eat? I, I quickly do the switch. I say, oh, if I say no, I will be starving. <laughs> yes,
0: I had to learn that the hard way in college. It took a really long time. <laughs> I would just always be the one sitting there without water and thirsty. <laughs> what do I need to do? But then you went to school, and that you went to college in the United States. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Oh, I came to the U.S. when I was in fifth grade. So I went to PS 144 in Queens, New York. I am a Queens girl, truly. I can, you know, when I get angry, the accent comes out. (laughs) (laughs) It's really interesting. I went to high school in Manhattan, and then college at Berkeley, California, and then grad school. My grad school is another straddling of two cultures because I did an MBA and a master's of fine arts in creative writing at the same time. Okay,
0: not in Australia.
1: <laughs> not in Australia. Then I went to Australia. Then I went to Australia. It's a lot of juggling different cultures, but I think it was great training to be a writer because as writers, what we want is to focus on the particular and through that, make it universal. And I knew from such a young age that even though the outfits or the language or what people eat or the politics may be different in different countries or continents, the human dynamics are exactly the same, are always the same. So whether I was wearing, you know, my Rusari and rupush in Iran in the playground and then <sniffs> Queens, New York, very different outward setting. There was always the mean girl. There was always the teacher's pet. The dynamics between people is the same.
0: Right. And then what drew you to writing stories so particularly about Iran? Have you written other things as well? Or is it usually centered around the Iranian experience?
1: So far, it's always been the Iranian experience, much to the disappointment of certain relatives because they'd love for me to write about not Iran because they're always worried, always worried. I mean, rightfully so. Exactly, exactly. And then
0: what what culture is your husband from? He's Iranian-American.
1: Oh, is he? Okay. He's Iranian-American. And I think that is super helpful because we have the same background there and the same familiarity. You know, though, all kinds of things work out. So I'm just saying that's my experience. But what made me want to be a writer is that I always read. I read. I was a bookworm. And, you know, all the things we say to kids now when they're on their phones, like, put that down, look up, be with us. It's going to ruin your eyes. You're hunching. That was all said to me with the books. I was always reading. And I think the cake was baked because those books that I read when I was, whether it was in the basement in Iran, literally during the war, or once I moved to the U.S., the books saved me. They always saved me. And they were my one constant. And I deep down always wanted to be a writer, but it was not a vocation that was available to the daughter of immigrants who had sacrificed so much.
0: Right, right. So how does your family feel about your parents in particular? How did they feel about what you do now? I mean, you've had a lot of success, so that
1: helps. But Yeah, they're happy now. They're happy now because, because I've had success. But when I wasn't successful... They were not terribly into it. I think the idea was, look, do this as a hobby. This is a great side gig. But please, please have a a real profession, a real profession with an income that's stable. And I get it because immigrants have given up a lot. And I think they want to rebuild some sense of stability and security in the new country. And I'm not alone in that which is why there's so many Indian doctors and engineers and Iranian doctors and, you know. But it was almost like a coming out when I finally... Wow.
0: (laughs) You had to hide
1: it, yeah. I was always like, yes, I'm doing this on the side and I'm getting my MBA, even though I don't like finance and I don't understand accounting. But yes, I'm here and I'm doing it. And then there came a kind of time when I realized... Big breath. This is this is who I am, and you know, let the chips fall where they may. Right. I've heard it all. Please let me tell you, if any of your listeners are wannabe artists or writers, sometimes people say to me, "Are you, you know, ever upset if anybody on Goodreads or Amazon, you know, get tons of reviews there? If anybody says anything slightly negative, do you get hurt?" I'm like, oh. (laughs) I have Iranian relatives and they, you know, they're very upfront and honest. Right. Well, one thing
0: that I've really come to understand with, you know, having this podcast and having the the kinds of work that I do is that I feel like Iranians, the first, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, past trauma and all this stuff. But the first thing that they do is criticize, like they will pick the one thing that doesn't agree with them in what you've done and they just talk about that first like and and i always tell them you know the reason that american culture is so like that they, they accomplish so much is that from that time they're very very little you know their parents say oh good job here's a certificate you did great and they just keep encouraging them until they become good that is how you become good whereas in our culture they just say just quit
1: just quit <laughs> <laughs> so funny that it's so funny you say that i've i've thought about this a lot and my husband is a runner and he he always tells the story he he tells the story when he was running his first new york city marathon he's running it's hard everybody's cheering and all the other people on the sidelines are like you can do it go and then his mom's like (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <That's> and <it's, laughs> that's exactly Yeah, yeah, I know. And it's, you know, it, I get it. But at the same time, to be fair, I, I, I want to be fair. I've had so many Iranians reach out to me thanking me, thanking me for representing the culture, thanking me for letting them see themselves on the page and for writing about these issues. So there is that too. But yes, you know, sometimes I I, I joke, like, I think in our American parenting, and I'm an American parent in my parenting, we're like, good standing, good breathing. (laughs) (laughs) None of that in
0: Iranian culture. So speaking of parenting, so you're married to an Iranian American. Can he speak Persian? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what about the kids? How have y'all navigated that with your children?
1: You know, Leila, this is a case study for you as a Persian language teacher. So we're both Iranian-American, and for the most part, we speak English. We can obviously speak Persian to each other. We started off speaking Persian to both kids so they would learn it. Yes. And my daughter is fluent. She can read and write it because she also went to the Saturday Persian language schools and was determined to learn it. My son understands but doesn't speak it as well, but he understands and he can speak a little bit. And the Persian language school coincided with soccer. So we had to make a choice. But it it is fascinating to me that my daughter speaks Persian fluently because I feel like that's an act of God. Even though we spoke to her when she was little, once she got older, it's easier for me to speak Persian to little kids. But if we're discussing, is there a God? I, I have to switch to English. You know, I just don't have the vocabulary. And yes, so it's wonderful. She does have, you know, the super duper American accent when she speaks it, but that's okay. Yeah, she speaks it
0: right. And then, do you do you like Noruz and all that kind of stuff in the house as well? Eat Iranian food. Oh, eat Iranian food all the time, like that. Do you think it's important? I mean, yeah, any of it? Do you think the language is important to keep, teach kids at this point? Like you said, your husband and you speak English fluently, why is it important for your, your daughter to know Persian and your son?
1: I just think, what a richness, what a privilege to be able to speak Persian. And it's a connection not just to their grandparents and their other relatives, but it's a connection to a past that they may think they don't have, but they have it. Just like you quoted that line, the past is always there lurking you know on the inside and that's not just your own personal past it's I believe generational also and I think when you have a language like Persian where so much classic poetry is written in Persian then it's an extra beautiful plus to speak it so we tried with both kids we spoke exclusively Persian until they went to school but then we had to switch and switch the food who wouldn't want to eat Iranian food (laughs) it's like the best I like it's my preference do you know what I'm saying like I feel like even if I wasn't Iranian that's the kind of food I like a very fragrant I love the sweet and the tart I love the I love the
0: Iranian food that comes up in the book where she cooks for Walter her American husband. Yes. I actually, I was thinking it'd be fun to use her little, there's a really nice pages long description of her making this choresh. I was thinking it'd be fun to do that for her, for my videos. I love doing that.
1: <laughs> I know it kind of became a little recipe there, but you know, I love Walter. Walter is one of my favorite characters and people think sometimes mistakenly that Roya loved Batman more. Not in my mind, I think she loved them equally in different ways. And I think we have more than one soulmate. That's also another discussion we can have. But yeah, the food, Nooruz, definitely we celebrate Nooruz. In fact, it's so funny because when my kids were little, I went out of my way to celebrate Nooruz so that they had the culture. And then now that they're older, I guess there was a part of me this past year because my daughter wasn't even in Boston. She was in New York and I thought, oh, I can kind of get away without doing a half seat. And then she's like, you taught us to celebrate Norris. You are making a half you know what I'm saying? It's like I almost did it too well. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, I'm in it now for the long I, time.
0: I can imagine it's the same with like a Christmas tree or something, you know? yeah, It's just
1: something yeah. I can... are like, what do you mean you're not gonna yeah.
0: Yeah, it's it's a sense of loss of like home if there's not a Christmas tree in your family house when you grow up. Well that's wonderful. Well, I think that that's all of my questions. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd still like to talk about?
1: I want to say thank you to you because I've suggested to both of my children to follow you on Instagram. And I just want you to know this is from the heart. And if you know me, you know that I say things like this and people think it's happy, but I'm sorry. That's who I am. What you have done is given them this entire gift, this generation where they have access to the Persian language and to the Persian culture in a way that's easy for them and familiar and not overwhelming. And I want to thank you for that. I'm not speaking right now as marriage on the writer. I'm speaking as marriage on the mom. Thank you for doing that for Gen Z, you know, and for all of us, but especially them. I think it's such a gift. I didn't have anything like this growing up, nothing. And so for me to be able to say, my daughter, you get on trying and conversation, and you see that, you know what I'm saying? Like it's just, it's a privilege that that we have, and you work so hard. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you. That means a lot to me, and I feel like it's a it's a continuation of my mother's work, and you know, everyone who's like come before us. And I really felt that reading this actually, it really made me want to talk to my mom more and get more stories from her, and just. Made me very emotional about that and just thinking about continuing her work and how language is so important to us to connect with our families. I love that this conversation started talking about families and I feel like this is a really important way for, for us to connect with our families and for the past generations. So whatever I can do to contribute to that makes me happy because I feel like that, you know, makes our bonds a lot stronger.
1: It does. And those of us who are a little bit older, we know that time's running out. To connect to our parents. I feel that in a very visceral way with my dad being sick and everything. And so I write at the end of the acknowledgments of the stationery shop. It was all an excuse to talk to him. Oh, yeah. Where does he live now? In New York. Okay. But, you know, normally if I called him and said, "Oh, everything's great, here's your mother. And then this book was an excuse for saying, hey, wait a sec. Yeah. Can you tell me about the cafes when you were 17. That's yeah.
0: so lovely. That's so wonderful. And your mom is there too in New York as well? Yes. yes. Okay. And they've been married for how many years now? Probably.
1: They have been married. It will be 57 years this summer. That's incredible.
0: Your parents shine through this story as well. And I feel like it's such a nice tribute to them. And so I feel I feel like that connection with my work as well. Just Yeah. Isn't
1: that why parents. we're doing it? But yeah. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. My mom also was like, you can't, you got to get your architecture degree. What are you doing? It's just... And I, I somehow managed to weasel my way into doing this work instead. But
1: Well, we're all the better for it. So
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was so wonderful to connect with you. I really appreciate it. And thank you. Yeah. And like I said, I want everybody to read this book. So we'll link
1: to the book. And where can people find out more about you or connect with you? Well, you can connect with me on my... Well, you can't connect with me on my website. You can find out more about just, just com or follow me on Instagram, which is something I'm supposed to say. I'm always bad about saying I'm marriageonkamali7. And once upon a time, I would have said Twitter, but who knows? So... <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right. My husband just discovered Twitter and I was like, it's it's done, man. <laughs> you yeah, I it's know. It's
1: like discover- discovering Rome after the fall, right? Like, not that it was ever that great, but yeah. <laughs> well, wonderful. Well, we'll link to all that
0: and you can read the book and Magic Emily, thank you so much for talking thank with you. me. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the interview. Again, to find out more about us and to find more interviews like this, go to our website at chaiandconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I. And if you enjoyed this interview, we'd really appreciate a review on iTunes. It really helps others to find the show. And until next time, Khuda Hafez from Leila.